0: I'm Lindsay Claiborne. And I'm Mumu Shu, and you are listening to Beyond the Microscope.
1: Hi, everyone. We're back for another episode. Today's guest is Dr. Tracy Funera. She is an environmental engineer. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So um, let's let's start with the beginning. Um, What do you do as an environmental engineer, and and who do you work for, and and what's your day-to-day like? That's one, that's three giant questions, so yeah. <laughs> take them as you will.
2: <laughs> okay, so um, after I graduated with my undergrad, I went and worked for a civil engineering firm doing water, wastewater, and stormwater design and treatment, and then after I graduated with my PhD, and all through the PhD, I still worked for consulting for as an environmental slash civil engineer, and then when I graduated, I um, I went to work for Moat Marine Laboratory as a research scientist. So right now I run the environmental health program, which was really outside of my comfort zone. I I didn't really know what I was getting into. All I knew is that environmental health had historically been very big into outreach and education. And so that's, that's something that through the journey of my, you know, work experience, master's and PhD, that's something that became really important to me because I realized that you can really make a difference through education. Um, but now my day-to-day is different every single day and that's that's one, one thing that I really, really love about it. Um, the program was historically marine research and red tide research. And marine research I was super excited for because you know, they're 90, 96.5% of the world's water is in the oceans and, and we depend so much on the oceans. And so transferring from my experience in hydrologic restoration and civil and, uh, environmental engineer engineering more on like the land and freshwater, um, this was a big change, but it was a welcome one. And uh, the red tide stuff, I was really not... Not too into at first because <laughs> I mean it's phytoplankton, you know? Um, and I was gonna have to work with phytoplankton ecologists. Okay,
0: so as a as a non biologist type person, what is, uh, red, why do is you hate, hate red
1: what top? is it and why do you hate it?
2: Okay. Yeah, I'll explain. <laughs> I'll explain. Actually, a lot of people hate red tide, and I'll, t- I'll tell it you that. It is
1: totally a Florida hate red tide kind of thing.
2: Right. It is definitely a Florida hate red tide because it's specific to the Gulf of Mexico. And what this red tide does, it, a, a lot of places have different algae blooms that they call red tide, but Florida red tide is specific to an organism called Karenia brevis, it's a phytoplankton, but it is very special because it contains a toxin called brevitoxin. That toxin can actually aerosolize, attach onto sea salt particles, and move on shore. And as you know, Florida is huge for their beaches and tourism. So when this brevitoxin comes on shore, people that are healthy will cough or get itchy eyes, runny nose. But if you have asthma or sea COPD, it can put you in the hospital. It can be very serious. So, um, you know, at first I wasn't too big into this whole I microscope. Don't blame you. <laughs> yeah, this whole microscopic algae thing. But as soon as I started getting the phone calls from from people that are retired and just wanted to come down to Florida for a vacation and can't, can't even stay at their house that they saved up for for so long on the beach. And people calling in and asking me where red tide effects are because their son wants to go play with his friends at the beach and he has asthma and can't go if there's red tide effects. Like it's, it's, It really pulls on your heartstrings and you start to really get into it that way because it means so much to the public. Um, but the thing is, it's a naturally occurring phenomenon. It's been happening since the 1500s. Um, it does appear to be getting worse with climate change, but that's not statistically proven. As of yet, we're working mm-hmm. on it. Um, but because, you know, it does have a place in the ecosystem to get rid of it. First of all, it's it's the ocean, you know, like you'd have to get rid of a ton of other uh, organisms as well, which is never good. Um, and then in addition, it's just, you know, it's just a—it's just a really big feat that we don't really—we don't know what the repercussions would be.
1: Right, it's like anything else, right? If you were to like, it'd be great to get rid of red tide for the sake of humans, but who 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 knows what kind of ripple effects, right? I mean, you're
2: exactly right, and it does—it does cause a lot of aquatic life, you know, death and and sickness, and we have like sick manatees and dolphins and and dead fish wash up. It's I mean. But at the same time, some scientists think that it resets the gulf hmm. um, and it's like a, a necessary part of the ecosystem. Um, but the one thing that we can do is monitor where blooms are and um, create models that will alert the public of where the effects are going to be. So I created a couple of apps to do this. Um, I worked with a programmer. Um And we put out uh, a redevelopment of the beach conditions reporting system was originally developed in 2006, but I redeveloped it in 2015 when I started at Moat to include other parameters. So if there's, you know, no bloom, people will still know to go to the website or app to check those conditions. Um, And also a citizen science app that anybody can report beach conditions from. it's different from the BCRS because the BCRS has trained beach sentinels like lifeguards or facilities reporting um, beach conditions like respiratory irritation, dead fish, water discoloration and as well as you know crowds, debris, um, jellyfish, etc.
0: And so is all your all the reporting done through um, I guess these sentinels or, is,
2: or do you have sensors or monitors out in the water as well? So we have all of it. So we do cruises to take uh, physical samples and then analyze back at the lab. We also have um, gliders uh, that are uh, AUVs that we put out to the ocean that constantly give us feedback of um, water chemistry, and um, we also have this this you know beach sentinel reporting too. Um, and it's not just us that that do the red tide monitoring. We work with oh a number of different um, research labs and government organizations throughout the Gulf of Mexico. And um, like NOAA, for example, puts all this information together. So does the Gulf of Mexico Coastal Ocean Observing System and Florida Fish and Wildlife. So there's many different places that you can find all this data that all these different groups are collecting.
1: So how did how did you get into environmental ecology and environmental engineering?
2: Um Actually, it was kind of by chance. Um, I wanted to be a I, – I love geology. I love biology. And I love the environment ever since I was little. Um, I grew up right near Love Canal. I'm not sure. Are you guys familiar with Love Canal? No. Uh, no, I'm it, not. It was the um, – so it, it was an industry dumping hazardous waste into a canal uh the toxins from that waste seeped into the groundwater it moved people built houses and schools and then there were birth defects and uh you know uh, a number of uh diseases and cancers that arose in that area and it actually inisi- initiated the EPA Superfund program oh okay yeah so um this is up in New York right right yeah, upstate okay. New York and I'm I'm from right near there Uh, So even though it happened before I was born, the effects, you know, affected my friend's parents. So it, it really taught me that everything in the world is connected. I saw that what humans put into the environment eventually came back to harm us. You know, the world always balances itself. And that's something that I learned at a very young age, but I really loved animals. So, um... So, biology was my first major. And then when I took rocks for jocks, I was like, oh, I'm really good at this. Well, so was everybody else because it was rocks for jocks. And then, (laughs) and then, and then when I I double majored in geology, I started to realize that that is one of the hardest majors there is. Like, geology is not easy. They trick you, Mm -hmm. they trick you to go into it. Um, But as soon as my parents got in state tuition at Florida, I transferred from Hobart Williams Smith. And um, they didn't have. Uh, I wanted to go into either oceanography or marine biology at that point because I was in Florida. Well, little did I know I was in the middle of the state, but that's another <laughs> another story. Minor detail. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they didn't have that stuff. So I went around, and actually, I was denied from the University of Florida because I I was trying to get into the College of Liberal Arts with geology and biology. Um, But they said that I hadn't taken physics yet and you can only transfer as a junior. So I went over to the University of Florida and um, I was getting in regardless. So I went to every college with my transcripts because I had the grades. You know, that wasn't the problem until someone let me in. And environmental engineering was the first place that I talked to and they let me in. And I just immediately fell in love with it. It was the best accident ever. (laughs) Like (laughs) I, it was completely meant to be. And at the university of Florida, that program is incredible. I mean, our grad school, I think is number one in the country for environmental engineering. The professors really care about the kids. They, I mean, it was, it was just a great experience, but you know, I had to do a five-year program in three years because I didn't want to spend forever in undergrad. And only one of my classes transferred over because. Oh no! <laughs> I know because they used to have trimesters up at Hobart. And it's a good I, thing
1: you really like this uh, major. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. So I was taking like twenty-five credits <laughs> of some, uh, wow. a some semester. Yeah, it was it was terrible. So when I was done with those three years, all I wanted to do was was go make money and work. Um, Makes sense. Yeah, so I went and I I took I. I'm very, um, I don't like to be bored. So even though I sent my resume to like a hundred places before I graduated, um, the, I took the first job I got, it was right down the street from my parents' house. And, um, there was two weeks in between. So of course I took another job for those two weeks. (laughs) Um, so I worked on a new technology to displace seagrass Um, because the seagrass is really important part of the ecosystem. And it was being killed because of, you know, boats and, you know, recreation. So they were moving it and they found a way to move it. So I helped them with that. And then I started um, with a land development firm, which was completely different than anything I had ever done in school, because back then stormwater wasn't even covered in classes. Um, and stormwater is the single most important thing in land development. That's what all the permitting is dependent upon. In the state of Florida, I should say, because um we have very strict rules here, but rightfully so, most of our water comes from groundwater. Um, and we have really poor soils, so a lot of that runoff can infiltrate. And if it doesn't, we have a lot of limestone and um, you know, we're we're susceptible to sinkholes if we displace that water from the groundwater to the surface water uh it does that make sense are you following i'm yeah, sorry yeah wait. Definitely. Yes, i feel wait, like I'm i want to so stop
0: yeah i want to stop a little bit and let's talk about sinkholes for a second oh no because they because <laughs> as a non-floridian they terrify me and i have no idea ad- so oh please <laughs> do i'm explain. actually
2: doing a pilot on sinkholes next month so ask away okay uh what how <laughs> <laughs> how? Why? Okay, and how so, do I avoid them? And how do you avoid them? Don't live in an area with karst geology. So any kind of uh, carbonate rock, like limestone, for example. Uh-huh. Um, so we have a lot of that there. So when it rains, and it rains a lot in Florida, water seeps down, that carbonate rock is mobilized and dissolved, and it makes the water acidic, and that dissolves more and more of the carbonate rock. But the big problem is... When these caves are created over years and years of natural water flow, and then we pull groundwater from the aquifer and it lowers that groundwater table. And then on top of it we're building uh, you know a lot of cement, adding impervious surface, which is any surface that water cannot penetrate so concrete uh, houses, asphalt, etc. So what we're doing is, taking that water from the ground and increasing the amount of water that's running off the surface and decreasing the amount of groundwater. So it's kind of like, um, what's a good example? Um, Well, let me go through it and then I'll try to think of an example. Um, But so basically what happens is that water's drawn down. All of a sudden these caverns that were naturally created are empty. And the weight of what's above it is too much for that cavern to handle without that water. And it just collapses.
1: Okay. Is it predictable? Or is it like, is it one of these things that you just don't know when it's going to reach its breaking point?
2: That is an excellent question. And, you know, to um, 50 years ago, probably not so predictable. But now, because you can actually see small movements from satellite imagery... Um, in addition, you know, if it's happening around your house, you can see kind of cracks in your foundation in doorways. Um, so you do have a little bit of of a warning if you're looking for it. Yeah, well, that might yeah. <laughs> That's, That's the if thing. you're looking for it. If keyword. you're looking for it. <laughs> yeah. um, and you know, when you buy a house, usually you have a geologic report. I know when we were doing any any land development. Um, uh, projects, we always had to do a geotechnical report, see what kind of soils underneath um, to determine if, you know, if it was safe. Well, most of the time it's to determine what kind of water you can draw for irrigation, but also, you know, that would let someone know what kind of geology is underneath where you're building.
0: So how much development is located on land where this can happen?
2: Um well you know it's not really a deterrent for development because it is really hard rock too and um it does mean that you're near you know a water source if uh you know we have a huge water crisis or something but mm-hmm. yeah people aren't really oh there's limestone there I'm not I'm not developing and if you look at a map um of where karst geology is in in the United States of course um you know northern Florida Georgia uh, uh, where else? I think a little bit of Louisiana and Alabama. Um, you know, it, it, it really, there is no difference between where the karst geology is and where it isn't based on urbanization. You know, they just haven't taken it into account. But the interesting thing is that the only place that has the exact geology as Florida apparently is Turkey. Which is really interesting. Even though there's karst geology all over the world, you know they have sinkholes in China, uh, Madagascar, uh, South America. You know they're they're all over the place. But apparently, from what a what a researcher told me last week, which I haven't confirmed through publications, I want to make that known. But <laughs> <laughs> is that Turkey is the only place with the, with the exact kind of geology that we have, which is interesting. But, um, yeah, there's some really interesting history behind sinkholes, too. And, you know, the Bible actually references them as a sign of the end of days, which I just found out. Like, well,
1: uh, for some reason, I'm not surprised too. about that. Yeah, really. yeah. I mean, <laughs> natural
2: disasters, that's kind of revelations, right?
1: Yeah. So, Mumu, since you're not in Florida, you
0: should be all right.
2: Or Turkey. Okay. Yeah. Or Turkey. yeah. Or Turkey. Or China. Okay. Or China. Avoid we're trying
0: to avoid those three places. Yeah. Apparently
2: China's the big, the the major like there was a huge sinkhole there. Really? But, oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but in Gainesville, Florida, they're popping up all over the place. Yeah, well, um, I, you always see the
1: pictures out of Florida.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, the person in 2013, um a man's house in Tampa just vanished and you know there was someone actually in the house, which is why it made national news. But a lot of the times these happen and people aren't aren't affected.
0: I remember that story. I think it was in California at that time. Yeah. Going
2: Which oh, is worse. Earthquakes Florida's. Earthquake sinkhole. Earthquake sinkhole. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know, I know. And we we have the hurricanes too, so um you know, it's like earthquakes or sinkholes plus hurricanes. So I think yeah, I think that California <laughs> wins on that one, except price <laughs> price of living, right? You know? right, there you go. True. Yeah, and then we're back to Florida. Yeah. <laughs>
0: okay, so we we've we sort of have gotten to to you graduating college and and have a, finding a job right after college, yeah, uh, and then finding a job before you started that job. Um, how did you get into graduate school, or why did you go to graduate
2: school? Okay, so that's that's really. Um, important because um, the reason why I went back to graduate school is because during my four years of consulting engineering experience, I realized that every project was approached the exact same way without looking for what would be best for this area, for this project, what is more sustainable, what, you know, there was no deviation whatsoever. Everything was done to minimum regulations, um, which it will always be the case. So, so really, it was the regulations that needed to change. And I knew that sustainable development can save developers time and money as well as you know, inf- uh, promote infiltration and recharge of the groundwater table, as well as uh, biological degradation of pollutants, etc. So I knew that there was a better way to develop things that, that just wasn't being done. So, um, I went back to school to do that research, to change regulations and actually make a difference on how we approach land development. And so that was my main driver. And then, uh, when I got to grad school, I had a really cool master's project. I got to storm chase, which was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. except I wasn't chasing tornadoes. I mean, I would have been really bored. In Florida, if I was trying to chase tornadoes. (laughs) (laughs) But there was tropical forest storm winds that you you know, like it was it was some serious storms, rainstorms that we were that we were chasing. Um, we were basically we were taking samples prior to and following uh, exposure to a filter media, and we did a ton of analysis afterwards to see What the filter media did for, you know, for pollutant removal. I focused mostly on phosphorus because most of the lakes in uh, northern Florida are phosphorus limited, which means that that's really the nutrient that's important for algae blooms. Now, I don't, where are you guys located? D.C.
1: But I just moved to D.C. from Florida. Oh,
2: okay. So, so I know
1: I know a lot of what you're talking about.
2: Okay. So do you remember when you were in Florida and you saw that like really thick green paste on a lot of lakes? Yeah, it's called eutrophication. Basically it's just proliferation of algae blooms. Um the thing is some of them can be harmful. They can uh release toxins just like, you know, red tide does, uh just a different toxin. Um, and actually can get into drinking water systems. This hasn't happened in Florida, but it did in the city of Toledo. Uh, they had to actually shut their water down. But anyway, preventing excess phosphorus into these lakes can prevent that from happening. And eutrophication um, has a number of, of effects. You know, it blocks out the sunlight And makes it so photosynthesis can occur underneath. It reduces the dissolved oxygen and just changes the ecosystem in general. But, yeah, so I forgot what your question
0: was. I think I covered it. I was just, I was curious how you, what you were doing as a graduate student and, yeah.
2: Yeah, so I switched uh, for my Ph.D., I, not only, not only did I switch professors, but I switched because I was really focused on on phosphorus removal and transport in uh, surface water, and I really wanted to look at something more big picture. You know, doing hydrologic restoration on a watershed level. So, from my experience in in project engineering and my modeling experience that I had, I really wanted to take that into my PhD and. No one was really doing that, and I knew that I was going to have to create it myself, and I knew I was going to have to go find my own funding. But to me, it was really worth it because it was something that I believed in. Um, so I found a professor who was a hydrologist, um, and and I, you know, just just went that way. I got a I got funded through something called SPICE. Uh, which was a program where graduate students actually go in and teach 7th grade science two days a week.
0: Oh, cool. I've never heard of this. Is it a national thing? It, or it, was, it thing? was.
2: It was an NSF program that got cut from the budget, which Aww, is unfortunate. Oh, man. That's yeah. a great idea, though. Yeah, we were going into underprivileged schools and doing hands-on science activities, so they were able to learn by actually doing um and we provided the all the um materials needed to do this, which was great because the school didn't have to jump through hoops to do it themselves right. um and it gave the teachers a break for a couple of days like it was it really benefited everybody i I'm really like someday if I make it big doing something or invent something, <laughs> I swear i will I will Start donate that up again yes. That will be that will be that thing that I that you know I want to huh. reinstate because it was a great program and it taught me a lot about communication and science like I know that throughout this call I've been using a lot of big words and I'm really sorry no it's okay you don't <gasps> mind big words okay I know you guys you
1: <laughs> but, right but you're right but like you know depends on your audience right right. I mean, If somebody who has no idea what you're talking about at all, it's going to be like, okay, she lost me, I'm done. But, you know, Moo and I know some things, and I've lived through enough red tides to know exactly how obnoxious those are. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, um, yeah, it really taught me to to speak at a seventh grade level, which I remember the first day I – I think it was the word eutrophication that I said Um, because they, you know, asked you to – introduce yourself and give a background and I just listened like watching the kids faces as I was talking made me realize that I I needed a lot of work um if because, I can only imagine <laughs> yeah I mean in seventh grade is great because apparently the general population has the education of a seventh grader when it comes to science huh. oh I didn't know that yeah so that makes sense yeah so they always tell you to talk down to a seventh grade level Um, another great thing about seventh grade is that that's statistically where kids lose interest in science, either it makes or breaks them. And to me, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, less, less women have historically gone into the STEM fields and girls mature faster than boys. So in seventh grade, the girls are liking boys where the boys, you know, they're just not there yet. Um, as much as the girls are, uh, and that's something I kind of saw and I thought was really interesting.
1: So the distraction factor is higher at that point for the girls. Yeah. I mean,
0: boys.
2: you know, and that's, that's an interesting theory. Yeah. It, it, and that's all it is. It's just a theory and, and, you know, something. My that, mother has said the same thing. So really, well, then it must be true. Yeah, she said it must be true. She said the exact same thing. Good. Let's just say she said that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> but yeah so it was it was a really great program and that's how I was funded throughout my PhD and then on top of it I worked um, at CH2M Hill um, which was really cool because I got to do you know projects all over the world I designed a I did the civil design for a city in Saudi Arabia which was really neat because um, they have no stormwater regulations so none
1: whatsoever no. they don't have stormwater
2: right well, the, pr- the problem is that they get very little rain, but when they do... It's, like, monsoon level. Because of how they build. Aww. So the water just ponds up, and apparently um, there's another city, I think it's Al-Kars, they had a flood of somehow, of, of some sort, like, uh, and, and many people lost their lives in this flood, and it devastated infrastructure, so... So this new city, they wanted to ensure that that didn't happen. So we were actually creating the stormwater regulations for this new city, which was really neat because that's that's an opportunity you don't really have. Not in Florida. I mean, in Texas, that's another story because they really need to to do something about their stormwater regulations. Actually, that was something
0: that I was going to ask um, when you were talking about uh, Saudi Arabia is that, you know, after Hurricane Harvey, you um, is Houston a city that was designed
2: for dealing with floodwaters? Well, the thing is with Texas, it's like uh, it's, it's kind of like the Wild West. And they pride themselves on that because, you know, they can do what they want with their property. Um, whereas in Florida, if you want to put a pool, I mean, into your, your yard, you have to jump through hoops with permitting, etc., but um, yeah, one of my really good friends, she works for CDM camp dresser McGee in uh, Houston. And the first thing she said when she got there is that she was shocked at the lack of stormwater regulation. And she wasn't even a stormwater engineer. and she was, you know just absolutely, you know, taken back by <laughs> by this lack of regulation and lack of hoops to jump through, which, you know, it it seems like it's easier until her house was four feet underwater. Um, so no, they are not, they do not do things the way Florida does, you know, and, and they get enough rain too. So they should, um, we, when we design things, we have to design to a certain, uh, storm event. You know, we can't let the stage downstream go more than a 10th of a foot higher. Um, due to your development upstream, which completely makes sense. You don't want to affect basins outside your own. And that's how, that's how we've maintained, you know, stormwater in Florida, even though we still get flooding um, in certain areas, we're not going to get flooding two hours inland. On top of it, our geology does help, you know, we have really high hydraulic conductivity, which means that that water will infiltrate super fast because of that limestone and sand. but yeah, so Houston definitely has to step it up. And um, my friend, uh, after this whole experience, she's really uh, heading up things over there. She's on a rampage. So uh, I'm going to help her any way I can with uh, doing some preliminary modeling. But um, it's, it's something that needs to change in Texas.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> if the storm won't do it, right?
2: Oh, I know. I know. The next one will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so we wanted to talk about another thing that you've been part of, um, uh, which is something that most people will find really cool. Tell us a little bit about um, Mythbusters.
2: So <laughs> Mythbusters was um, – it was definitely a learning experience and a lot of fun. Uh, I – you know, throughout my, my Ph.D. And, and master's, I started to realize that you really can – change behavior through education. You know, I saw people throwing things out the side windows and, and in a survey, I asked people where I thought, where they thought their stormwater goes and they, you know, 72% either didn't know or thought that it went to a wastewater treatment plant when 100% of the stormwater in Florida goes to a natural water body. And I started seeing those same people hold on to their trash. And then, you know, the same thing with bottled water, you know, and I started to learn how to create behavioral changes to be more sustainable. Um, and so I was really big into, you know, outreach. And that that's when the dream was born to, you know, make environment mainstream. Uh so when I had the opportunity to go on to Mythbusters, I knew it was completely outside of my comfort zone. But, you know, that's really the only way that you learn is to go outside of your comfort zone and grow. So I I took the opportunity, I wanted to get The TV experience, so I can, you know, kind of know the ropes so I can do this environmental movement. Um, But I had, you know, I was a design engineer and I wanted to do the calculations on everything and optimize every single.
1: Uh, <laughs> and design. they didn't have the time for that.
2: You're exactly right. They had no <laughs> interest in optimization whatsoever, or design, <laughs> or calculations. It was more like, and the thing is here, here's the thing Mythbusters was made by non scientists for non scientists. Yeah. You know? Um, and that's the beauty of it. That's why it was so great because it got people that what weren't interested in science interested in science. And that's something that was really appealing to me. But at the same time, I'm not that um You're sitting there going, No, I need to I just
1: need to Oh do you one have no idea
2: calculus. people were making so much fun of me constantly. They're like, <laughs> Oh, I need to do the calculus. <laughs> yeah. It was it was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, like I had welded like twice prior to the show. And so um yeah, that was new. It was kinda <laughs> It was, I have no interest in ever welding again. I got to be honest. It, does, it doesn't <laughs> you help. Because, you've done it. Here, yes. And here's the thing. Here's the reason why it's because one of the guys on the show, his wife, who is like eight months pregnant, came to visit and she told me that her friend was, became infertile because of welding. And I was like, well, you know, it, even if this hasn't been proven yet, perhaps it might be in the future. And it, it was just a huge turnoff.
0: Um, oh, yeah! I never heard that before.
2: Yeah. yeah, wow. Yeah, I mean, but I, I believe it can be true because there's a lot mm-hmm. of fumes and, you know, you're right, literally melting metal. Yeah,
1: that's true. Um. So what did like out of out of that whole thing? Like, what, what was like? What did you feel like you walked away from with that crazy, that sort of bizarre, crazy, surreal of an experience?
2: Yeah. Um. Well. The coolest part was seeing that all of a sudden I was, you know, being looked at as a role model by kids. And that was, that really changed my perception of myself. Um, And I really kind of grew from that and became a better person from that. Um, You know, swearing less.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Just little things like that, right?
2: Right, right. Um, And I started to realize the responsibility that that all of us have as adults in, you know, in this field or, you know, in any position where you're able to have a stage to talk on or a platform to communicate. Um, And that goes for social media, too, uh, because these kids are just so um, open to, you know, um, learning from people that you really have to make sure that what they're learning is something good. Um, but yeah. And I, I, from that show, I, I took away a lot, you know, I, I realized what I needed to work on as far as, uh, oral presentation. Um, and it really gave me a good platform to talk about science. Cause after that, you know, UF put me on their homepage and had me talk for several colleges. And then, um, within the school. And then, you know, at Moat Marine Laboratory, we have a big PR and media, uh, program there. And so they were able to get me a lot of interviews and, you know, really give me a lot of opportunities to not only talk about the show, but talk about my work at Moat and, right. um, all the things I'm trying to do with my program, which was excellent.
1: What is we're gonna we're gonna use that segue perfectly because you said you wanted to talk about your work. So
0: Momo has a yeah. So I was question. gonna <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna ask the, what are you currently working on or what is the, the project that you're kind of really excited about?
2: The project I'm really excited about is an EPA funded project uh, on endocrine disruptors in the Florida Keys. So right now I um, feel like
1: I'm gonna about to be traumatized by
2: this. No, you're not. You're, okay, good. You're actually not. It's well. <laughs> I mean <and laughs> I here's the thing you think about this think about all the chemicals we're putting into the environment I mean they're right. using sucralose which is artificial sweetener as a human activity indicator because it's not removed from wastewater treatment plants
0: no
1: kidding
2: yeah so um that's so clever I like I to it,
1: think of that as something to use as a as a gauge because yep. it would never be there that's amazing sorry I find yeah that it, it is it
2: is um And you know, but if you think about it, there's just so many chemicals that we're putting into the environment that aren't being removed by water treatment plants, wastewater treatment plants, and and this is all the same water that we're recirculating. You know what I mean? So the the amount of chemicals in the environment are just increasing. Um, So that includes, you know, and especially with our increasing population and urbanization, uh, endocrine disruptors from things like insecticides. Are becoming more prevalent in our environment. So this project really focuses on the effect to coral reefs. But my job on the project is to uh, model the transport, come up with a best management practice plan, which is the same thing as low-impact development, you know, kind of a retrofit plan for the Florida Keys to reduce the amount of um, endocrine disruptors from insecticides and other wastewater chemicals to the environment. If that makes sense.
1: Did Hurricane Irma screw up all your work or is it
2: No, has it, it literally didn't.
1: stirred everything up so things changed.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. It it didn't actually. I mean, this solution to pollution is dilution. Um, (laughs) let me guess you practiced that one so basically yeah i mean if we went and took samples after the storm all we would find is less insecticides i'm sure um but after a normal storm where there was you know a number of dry days previously you know that's when you would see this insecticide runoff. but the really cool part about this project is that i'm creating a new filter media so previously and historically we've had media that focuses on the removal of phosphorus, phosphorus and nitrogen so that we prevent from algae blooms. People really haven't looked at or nor other regulations on minimizing the amount of endocrine disruptors that are transported downstream. So this filter media I'm trying to develop will remove some of those hydrophobic compounds from you know the insecticides, etc. Okay. Yeah. Do I need to, wow. do I need to <laughs> no, no. say that a lot? No, like, no,
1: no. How I mean, how hard is that? I mean, is this is this like a stretch goal or is this something that's really sort of attainable
2: and can make a big difference quickly? So my master's research was on a new filter media. Uh, it was aluminum coated oxide material. So it was um, uh, crushed concrete with aluminum oxide on it. And it was adsorptive and, you know, polar. So it pulled phosphorus off, you know, dissolved phosphorus or phosphate. Um, so it was possible in that sense. So I figured, well, you know, if, if my professor back then did it, then why, why can't I do it for this other compound? Well, the thing is that although I have a very strong chemistry background, I am not like in you know, I I don't have that kind of um, knowledge to actually create a new material. So I am working literally like 15 to 18 hours a day trying to teach myself how to do this. What? Yeah, no I that going, <laughs> it's not going. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, it's it's not easy um, to do something you've never done. But honestly, if you don't do things that have never been done how are you going to you know change the world you have a good sound bite
1: you have some amazingly lofty goals i'm impressed and i don't mean that in a bad way but i mean like (laughs) some people are like i'm going to research this one little tiny thing and i'm going to solve it you're like no i'm going to change the world no i don't worry about me i'm going to handle that
2: I know and that's the thing like i can't i can't just focus on one little thing like it's not in me but the thing is that sometimes I take on too much too. And like, you know, the stress levels, man, I really, I, (laughs) I don't, I don't know how that's going to affect me long-term, but I better, I better solve all the world's problems before I get there.
1: Oh, well, that's a good
2: plan. (laughs) Uh, Well, Tracy,
1: that's all the questions um, we have for you. Thank you so much for um, sharing all of your crazy stories and confirming that Mumu not going to die in a sinkhole anytime soon.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think you're safe. I think you're safe.
1: Hey, you're still here. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a reading on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The copycut.